Chapter sixty one of The Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsten Nelson. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter sixty one. Juliet was aroused from this species of patient despondency by the groom of Mrs. Ireton, who broke in upon her with orders to inquire whether it were her intention to detain his lady at the castle all night, adding that all the rest of the party had been gone some time. Juliet followed him to the hall, where she was greeted as usual with sharp reproaches, conveyed through ironical compliments. Upon reaching the portico she perceived hastily returned, and dismounting his horse, Lord Melbury he held back with an air of irresolution till mrs ireton to whom he distantly bowed was seated and then suddenly springing forward offered his hand to her depressed and neglected dependent blushingly yet gratefully she accepted his assistance and having placed her in the coach and made a slight compliment to mrs ireton the carriage drove off and the final amazement over the envenomed taunts of that lady were indulged in a full scope of unrestrained malignity during the whole little journey Juliet scarcely heard them. New perplexity, though mingled with hope and pleasure, affected and occupied her. Lord Melbury, in aiding her into the carriage, had said, "'I am afraid you will lose your shawl,' and, snatching at it, as if to prevent its falling, he enveloped a small packet in the folds which he put into her hands, of which in her first confusion she was scarcely conscious, though she felt at the instant that he disappeared. "'Was it money?' nothing in her helpless state could be more welcome yet to what construction even from himself might not its acceptance be liable nevertheless with so suspicious and ill-judging a witness by her side to call him back might seem accusing him of intentions of which she sincerely believed him guiltless the moment that she could disengage herself from her troublesome charges she stole to her chamber where she read the following words written with a pencil upon the cover of a letter how shall I ever endure myself again, should Miss Ellis withdraw her kind promise of communication, in resentment of an acquiescence in quitting her for which already I begin almost to disdain myself? Yet my consent was granted to two of the purest of her admirers and well-wishers. I could not have been biased an instant by those who know not how to appreciate her. Hold, therefore, amiable Miss Ellis, your condescending promise sacred, though I make a momentary session of my claim upon it to the pleadings of those who are every way better entitled to judge than I am, of what will best demonstrate the high and true respect felt for Miss Ellis by her most obedient, humble servant, Melbury. P.S. Aurora had no time to entreat for your permission to lodge the enclosed trifle in your hands. She is ashamed of its insignificance, but she has a plan which I shall unfold when I have next the honour of seeing you, to solicit as a mark of your confidence, becoming, through me, your banker till your affairs are arranged. Pardon this paper, I ride on horseback to catch you flying. Soft were the tears of Juliet, and radiant the eyes whence they flowed as she perused these words. Nor could she hesitate in accepting the offering, though the little gold purse which contained it was marked with the cipher of Lord Melbury. It was presented in the name of his sister, a sister whom he revered as truly as he loved, such a name therefore sanctioned both the loan and the kindness, and the intimation given by the young peer himself of the equal influence over his mind possessed by lady barbara frankland proclaimed and proved the purity of his regard and the innocence of his intentions an idea now struck her that bounded to her heart with rapture might not the sum of which she permitted herself to take the disposal prove the means of reunion with gabriella 
a very small part of it would suffice for the journey, and the rest might enable them, when once together, to make some arrangement for being parted no more. A plan so soothing could not, even for a moment, present itself to her imagination, unaccompanied by some effort to put it into execution, and she instantly wrote a few lines to her beloved friend, stating the present possibility of their junction, and demanding her opinion, her consent, and her directions, for the immediate accomplishment of so delicious a scheme. Cheered by a hope so dear to her wishes, so promising to her happiness, Juliet now was perfectly contented to continue at Brighthelmstone, till she should receive an answer to her proposal. But before its arrival was yet possible, she was called to a messenger, who would deliver his commission only to herself. She descended, not without perturbation, into the hall, where a countryman told her that he had been ordered to beg that she would go at the usual time the next morning to the usual place to meet her old friend. He was then walking off, but Juliet stopped him, to demand whence he came and who sent him. A lady, he answered, who spoke broken English, and who had named five of the clock in the morning. "'Oh, yes, oh, yes!' cried Juliet. "'I will not fail!' Whilst a soft murmur finished with, "'Tis herself, tis my Gabriella!' What brought her back to Brighthelmstone now occupied all the thoughts of her friend. Was it a design to fix her abode where her maternal enthusiasm might daily be cherished by visiting the grave of her child? or was it for the single indulgence of bathing that melancholy spot once more with her tears? It was already night, or Juliet would have sought to anticipate the meeting by some inquiry at their former lodgings. The morning, however, soon arrived, and nearly with its dawn she arose, and by a previous arrangement made with the gardener, quitted the house, to hasten to the churchyard upon the hill. In her way thither she was seized from time to time, with something like an apprehension that she was pursued, for though no one came in sight the stillness of the early morning enabled her to hear distinctly a footstep that now seemed to follow her own now to stop till she had proceeded some yards it might merely be some workman yet would not a workman overtake her and pass on it was more probably some traveller nevertheless she would not ascend the hill without making some examination and casting a hasty glance behind her she perceived a tall man muffled up whose air denoted him to be a gentleman but who instantly hung back a thousand anxious doubts were now awakened. Was it possible that she had been summoned upon any false pretense? Gabriella had not written, and though that omission had at first appeared the natural result of haste upon her arrival, joined to the difficulty of immediately procuring writing implements, it left an opening to uncertainty upon reflection by no means satisfactory. That she should not have personally presented herself at the house of Mrs. Ireton could excite no surprise, for she well knew that Juliet had neither time nor room at her own command, and to revisit the grave of her child had always been the purpose of Gabriella. With a slackened and irresolute step she now went on, till, wistfully looking towards the churchyard, she descried a female, with arms uplifted, that seemed inviting her approach. Relieved and delighted, she then quickened her pace, though as she advanced the form retreated till gradually it was wholly out of sight. This affected and saddened her. The little grave was on the other side of the church. It is there, then, only, she cried, there, where our melancholy meeting took place, that my ever-wretched Gabriella will suffer me to rejoin her. With an aching heart she proceeded, though no Gabriella came forward to give her welcome. But when, upon crossing over to the other side of the church, in full sight of the little grave, no Gabriella was there, and not a human being was visible. She felt again impressed with a fear of imposition, and was turning back to hurry home, when she observed, just mounting the hill, the person by whose pursuit she had already been startled. 
terror now began to take possession of her mind she had surely been deluded and she was evidently followed she had neither time nor composure for divining why but she was instantly certain that she could be no object for premeditated robbery and the unprincipled sir lyle sycamore alone occurred to her as capable of so cruel a stratagem to inveigle her to a lonely spot the height of the man was similar his face was carefully concealed but transient as had been her glance it was obvious to her that he was no labourer nor countryman to descend the hill would be to meet him to go on yet further when not a cottage perhaps might be open would almost seem to expect being overtaken yet to remain and await him was out of all question she saw therefore no hope of security but by endeavouring to regain the street through a circuitous path by sudden rapidity of flight but upon gliding with this design to the other side of the church she was struck with amazement to see that the church door was ajar and to perceive at the same instant a passing shadow reflected through a window of some one within the building was this accident or had it any connection with the tall unknown who followed her filled with wonder and alarm though a stranger to every species of superstition her feet staggered and her presence of mind threatened to play her false when again a fleeting shadow of she knew not whom nor what gleamed athwart a monument summoning now her utmost force though shaking with nameless apprehensions she crossed with celerity a gravestone to gain what appeared to be the quickest route for descending when the sound of a hasty step immediately behind her gave her the fearful intelligence that escape was impossible nevertheless though nearly overcome with dread she was pressing on but some one rushing abruptly past her and turning short round stopped her passage horror thrilled through her every vein and the persuasion that she was the destined victim of deliberate delusion when the words it is indeed then you uttered in an accent of astonishment yet with softness made her hastily raise her eyes and raise them upon harley bereft of prudence in the suddenness of her joy forgetting self-command and casting off all guard all reserve she rapturously held out to him her willing hands exclaiming oh mr harley are you then my destined protector my guardian angel speechless from transported surprise harley pressed to his lips and to his heart each unresisting hand while juliet whose eyes beamed lustrous with buoyant felicity was unconsciousness of the happiness that she bestowed from the absorption of the delight that she experienced precious forever precious moment cried harley when the power of utterance returned here on this spot where first the tortures of the most deadly suspense give way to the most exquisite hopes the countenance of juliet now again underwent a change the most sudden its brilliancy was overclouded its smiles vanished its joy died away not indeed to return to its look of horror and affright but to convey an expression of the deepest shame and regret and with cheeks tingling with burning blushes she strove to regain her hands to recover her composure and to account to him by relating what had been her dread and her mistake for her flattering reception but she strove in vain her efforts to disengage herself had no more that frozen severity which harley had not dared resist and though her earnestness and distress shewed their sincerity her varying blushes her inability to find words and her uncontrollable emotion demonstrated to his quick perception that to govern her own conflicting feelings at this critical moment was as difficult as to resume over his accustomed dominion here on this spot he continued this blessed sacred hallowed spot clear and eternally dismiss every torturing doubt by which i have so long been martyrized here let all baneful mystery all heart-wounding distrust be for ever exiled and here 
a faint but earnest, Oh, no, 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 now quivered from the lips of Juliet, but Harley would not be silenced. And here, where you have condescended to call me your protector, your destined protector, a title which gives me claims that never while I live shall be relinquished, claims which not even yourself now can have power to recall. Hear me, hear me, interrupted, but vainly, the pleading Juliet. Harley, uncontrolled, went on. Initiate me, without delay, in the duties of my office. Against whom, and against what, may I be your protector? You have called me, too, your guardian angel. Oh, suffer me to call you mine. Consent to that sweet reciprocation which blends felicity with every care of life, which animates our virtues by our happiness, which secures the performance of every duty by making every duty an enjoyment. A frequent, alas, alas, was all that Juliet could gain time to utter, from the rapid energy with which Harley overpowered all attempt at remonstrance. Why, why, he then cried, with redoubled vivacity, why not exile now, and repudiate for ever that terrible rigour of reserve that has so long been at war with your humanity? Listen to your softer self. It will plead, it will surely plead for gentler measures. Oh, no, 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 reiterated the agitated Juliet, with a vehemence that would have startled, if not discouraged him, had not another incautious, alas, alas, stole its way into the midst of her tremulous negatives and revealed that her heart, her wishes, her feelings, bore no part in the refusals which her tongue pronounced. This was not a circumstance to escape Harley, who, indescribably touched, fervently explained, And what now shall sunder us? Pardon my presumption if I say us. What is the power, the earthly power, while yet I live and breathe and feel, that can now compel me to give up the rights with which from this decisive moment I hold myself invested? No, our destinies are indissolubly united. All procrastination, all concealment must be over. They would now be literally distracting. Why, then, that start? Why that look? Can you regret having shewn a little feeling, a trait of sensibility? Oh, put a period to this unequalled, unexampled mystery. I am yours, faithfully, honourably yours, yours to the end of my mortal existence, yours by my most sacred hopes far, far longer. You weep? Not from grief, I trust, I hope, not from grief flow those touching tears. Open to me your situation, your heart, here on this sacred and henceforth happiest spot, where first you have accorded me a ray of hope, let our mutual vows be plighted to all eternity. Juliet, whose whole soul seemed dissolved in poignant yet tender distress, cast up to heaven, as if imploring for aid, her irresistibly streaming eyes when, caught by some shadowy motion to turn them towards the church, she fancied that she beheld again the female, whose appearance in vanishing had been forgotten from the excess of her own emotions. Startled, she looked more earnestly, and then clearly perceived, though half-hidden behind a monument, a form in white, whose dress appeared to be made in the shape and of the materials used for our mortal covering, a shroud. A veil of the same stuff fell over the face of the figure, of which the hands hung down straight at each lank side. Struck with awe and consternation, Juliet involuntarily ceased her struggles for freedom, and Harley, who saw her strangely moved, pursuing the direction of her eyes, discerned the object by which they had been caught, who now, slowly raising her right hand, waved to them to follow, while with her left she pointed to the church, and uttering a wild shriek flitted out of sight. Could it be Eleanor? Each felt at the same instant the same terrible apprehension. Harley sprang after her. Juliet, almost petrified with affright, was immovable. The fugitive entered the church and darted towards the altar, 
where she threw her left hand over a tablet of white stone, cut in the shape of a coffin, with the action of embracing it, yet in a position to leave evident the following inscription. This stone is destined by herself to be the last kind covering of all that remains of Eleanor Jodrell, who, sick of life, of love, and of despair, dies to moulder and be forgotten. Casting off her veil when she perceived Harley, "'Here, Harley, here!' she cried, in a tone authoritative though tremulous. "'Tis here you must reciprocate your vows. Here is the spot. Here stands the altar for the happy. Here the tomb for the hopeless.' Suspicious of some sinister purpose, Harley was at her side with the swiftness of lightning, but not till her fingers were upon the trigger of a pistol which she had pointed to her temple, though in time by attaining her arm and forcibly giving it a new direction to make her fire the deadly weapon in the air. Her own design, nevertheless, seconded by the loud din of a pistol so close to her ear and let off by her own hand, operated upon her deranged imagination with a belief that her purpose was fulfilled, and she sank upon the ground, uttering with a deep groan, "'Oh, Harley, bless the dying Eleanor, and be happy!' Harley, terrified and shocked, though thankfully perceiving her mistake, dropped down at her side and supported her head, while congratulating eyes stole a glance at Juliet who at the sound of the pistol had hastened aghast to the spot, but who now, dreading to be seen, retreated. "'Oh, Eleanor!' he then cried. "'What direful infatuation of wrong is this! What have you done with your nobler, better self? How have you thus warped your reason and your religion alike to an equal and terrible defiance of here and hereafter?' Recovering at these interrogatories, to conscious failure and conscious existence, she hastily arose, indignantly spurned at the tablet, looked around for Juliet with every mark of irritation, and casting a glance of suffering, yet investigating shame at Harley. "'Tis again, then,' she cried, "'abortive, and a third time I am food for fools, when I meant to be food only for worms.' She then peremptorily demanded Juliet, who, affrighted, was absconding, till shrieks rather than calls forced her forward. With an exultation so violent that it seemed incipient frenzy, Eleanor hailed her. "'Approach, Ellis, approach!' she cried. O chosen of the chosen, O born to shew and prove the perfectibility of earthly happiness, and the falsehood and sophistry of the ignorance and superstition that deny it, approach, and let me sanction your nuptial contract. I here solemnly give you back your promise. I renounce all tie over your actions, your engagements, your choice. Approach, then, that I may join your hands while I quaff my last draught of tender poison from the grateful eyes of Harley, whose happiness, my own donation, will cast a glory upon my exit. Juliet stole motionless, pale, almost livid, and appearing nearly as unable to think as to speak. But the feelings of Harley were as much too actively alive as her seemed morbid. Agitation beat in every pulse, flowed in every vein, throbbed even visibly in his heart, which bounded with tumultuous triumph, that Juliet now was liberated from all adverse engagements. And though he sought and meant to turn his eyes with tender pity upon Eleanor, they stole involuntarily, impulsively, glances of ecstatic felicity at the mute and appalled Juliet. The watchful Eleanor discerned the distraction, which he imagined to be as impenetrable as it was irresistible. Shame, mingled with despondence, superseded her exultation, and disdainfully, and even wrathfully, she disengaged herself from his hold. But suspicious of some new violence, he hovered over her with extended arms, and presently caught a glimpse of a second pistol placed behind the tablet and as nearly as possible out of sight. Her intention could not be doubted, but forcibly anticipating her movement, he seized the destined instrument of death, and flying to the porch, fired it also into the air. Eleanor now was confounded, 
She reddened with confusion, trembled with ire, and seemed nearly fainting with excess of emotion. But after holding her hands a minute or two crossed over her face, she forced a smile and said, "'Harley, our tragicomedy has a long last act. But you can never now believe me dead till you see me buried. That next must follow.' and abruptly she was rushing out of the church when she was encountered in the porch by her foreign servant, accompanied by the whole house of Mrs. Maple. Juliet, satisfied that this victim to her own passions and delusions would now fall into proper hands, eagerly glided past them all, and finding the streets no longer empty, fled back to the mansion of Mrs. Ireton. End of chapter. Recording by Kirsten Nelson, Toronto.